A 200-mile missile carrying, instead of a warhead, three stages of solid-fuel booster rockets and explorer. A six-foot bullet only inches across, crammed with electronic gear. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Who was that? It was the announcer on the TV, on a broadcast, to tell the world that the US has launched its first satellite. Oh, what a time to be alive. <laughs> there we go. But more on that later. Before we get on yeah. to the main event mm-hmm. of this podcast, do you want me to tell you a bit of uh, news that's been happening this week? Because there's been quite a bit of it. Do I? I mean, yeah, I do. So the funniest bit of the news is what happened last night. What happened? So I was just about to uh, put the kids to bed and I allowed them to watch SpaceX launch yet another Falcon 9 with GovSat 1 on it. Such a good dad. Yes, I am a good dad. But they were a little bit disappointed because uh, there was no return. There was no uh, landing for the uh, booster. But hilariously, even though... SpaceX wanted to uh, get rid of this particular booster. Well, they didn't want to get rid of it, but it was kind of being used as an expendable booster. Uh, particularly considering it's a really, it's an old one. It's an old one. It's a reused one, and it's a, it's one of the Block Three uh, versions. So it's a really old, uh, reused uh, Falcon Nine booster. And they thought, well, this this satellite's so heavy, and we've got to get it into a in, into an orbit that uh, we can't bring it back down. Yeah. Uh, but they've managed to land it at sea, and it's just like floating around in the in the sea now. So oh, they've got result. to go and sa- so so the, yeah, they've got to go and salvage it. So even though they tried to get rid of it, they've now got to go and salvage it. It's just bobbing around. So Elon Musk tweeted with a picture of the booster bobbing around in the Atlantic Ocean, and he said the rocket was meant to test very high retro thrust landing in water, so it didn't hurt the drone ship. But amazingly, it has survived. We'll try to tow it back to shore. So, is there... I mean, I assume that there's going to be some damage to it. Yeah, I think salt water probably means yeah. that, that that thing ain't ever going to fly again. Still pretty amazing, though. It's amazing, yeah. And and, and uh, it's the first successful launch of a Falcon 9 this year, Get if you in. don't count Zuma. Uh, and who knows? Who will ever know about uh, Zuma? I think it's going to remain a mystery. Know. Yeah. Uh, I didn't allow my kids to stay up a little bit later, though, Ugh. and watch a Soyuz rocket. Such a bad dad. That went, I am a bad dad. Not the capital of Iraq. That's Baghdad. Yes, that's true. Uh, Soyuz rocket going up with a Frigat space tug up a stage, and that was carrying 11 satellites. Space tug. 11 satellites. 11. Russian, German, and US. Jeez. And that was the first flight from the Vostochny Cosmodrome, Russia's new all-spangling cosmodrome, uh, uh, this year since the failure, since that embarrassing failure back in November. Well, it's nice that they've got a success here. Yeah, particularly considering they've launched a couple of drum kits up into space, the Canopus V3 and four satellites. Although I don't think they are drum kits, I think they're actually satellites. Why? Dr- mm. Why did you say drum kits then? Because Canopus is a is a make of drum kit, Jamie. I it's had a fam- no it's a, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I would have thought you'd have known that being in the Inders. No, I just I just don't care enough about drums. <laughs> <laughs> apart from presumably apart from, apart from electric, digital drums, electric, electric drums. drums of that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I tell you what, though, this week also we had uh, uh, the launch of an Ariane Five, the first Ariane Five launch uh, oh, this year. There was year. a bit of a scare, wasn't there? Just a bit. So, yeah, after 81 successes in a row, yeah. this is the first partial failure of an Ariane 5. Can you believe that? Jeez, that's insane. So, yeah, so it, it's, um, it was to launch the SES 14. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's a couple of numbers before the SES 16 that uh-huh. uh, Falcon 9 just launched. Uh, and the Allier 3 communication satellite. And what's bizarre about this is that they lost telemetry... Uh, that the, the tracking station in Brazil was supposed to acquire the launcher's telemetry, and it didn't. So the, the rockets kind of veered off course somehow. But what's more incredible is that the satellites were still um, deposited into some form of orbit, even though the wrong one. And oh. they're now communicating with those satellites. And uh, it looks like it's, they're, they're actually going to be okay. So... Wow. And I think this is incredible, actually. To be fair, um, it does actually show, <laughs> in some Someone ways, it actually shows... be breathing a very, quite a heavy sigh of relief. Yeah. Well, oh, absolutely. These things, least of all the people that spend years building these satellites, you know. You'd be we gut- can't forget so the, gutted, wouldn't you? Oh, you know, literally, it's like a, a year and a year and a half, two years' work building these things. Plus the companies that pay the millions of pounds, or in some cases, billions of dollars to get mm. these things built. Yeah, you wouldn't, whole you wouldn't want to make that you know, phone call to your investors, would you? No. It's, you know, whole communities um, rely on these satellites for broadband and things like that. So mm. it's pretty amazing. But so SES-14, that probably won't have any kind of impact on its overall mission because it can use its electric propulsion to get to the correct orbit. It'll take some time, but it will get to the correct orbit and it won't really use up any of its lifetime doing so. The Alye 3, however, is uses rocket propulsion, so uh, uh, liquid fuel. So in getting to the... Um, in getting to the right place, it is going to use up some of its... Um, some of its fuel so it will shorten its operational longevity once Mm. it gets there so it's going to have to do a lot of work to get there so um yeah it's it's um it's 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 it was a it was that must have been a a bit of a scary moment for uh, ariane space uh, and right. uh, that, so the, the statement from them is that they have set up an independent inquiry in conjunction with ESA. So uh, we won't really know what happened, um, but they just lost telemetry. Uh, so yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no even. I haven't even seen any speculation about what it could be. To be honest, um, well, uh, I am wiping yeah. sweat from my brow. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, there are uh, there's no there's going to be no delays to their up and coming uh launches from the from French Guiana good so they're carrying on as normal and it doesn't look like it'll affect future launches like uh and I big gulp here the James Webb telescope oh could you imagine i might imagine if that if that incident had happened with the James Webb telescope on board <laughs> it's just like talk Matt, about if stressful if there's any telescope that me and you 
don't want to fail. It's the James Webb, isn't it? I, I even now people send pictures of terrified animals and memes when talking about the launch of James Webb Telescope. It, it is absolutely frightening. Matt, <laughs> did you just really, say the word meme? Uh, a meme. You're such meme. a You're such a cool dad. Do you know what? I've known about memes ever since Richard Dawkins talked about them in some of his famous books. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. There we yeah. go. Meme. Good old Dorks. Yeah. Good old the Dorkmeister. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I just wanted to I, here we get Ariane 5 first launch in 1996 which unfortunately was a failure but it's it's flown nearly a hundred times so over the past 20 years uh, years as you would say <laughs> uh, it, it, <laughs> it has yeah it has launched get this 97 flights and only two have been failures and three partial failures. Yeah, that's not a bad it's not a bad rate, is it? No. So actually, we there's there's the last 10 uh, launches are now on the manifest for Ariane 5 yeah. and it will be replaced by Ariane 6. So there's 23 Ariane 5 rock, rockets that still to be launched until 2023 uh-huh. uh, and then Ariane 6 will take over. That's ace. Good work, chaps. And chapesses. And don't forget, Ariane 5 launched the Rosetta spacecraft into orbit. How safely. can I forget that, man? No, you haven't. It's me you're talking to. Papa Rocket. <laughs> talking of other successes, Jamie. Yeah. Good old Opportunity has quietly been trundling around the Mars surface and has racked up 14 years this week. 14 years? Yeah. So it's absolutely smashed it on the red planet. Oh, that's amazing, what isn't it? What a faithful little robot it's been. What an amazing robot. It's a robot. good dog, isn't it? Uh, I'm going to do a bit of a fox and grapes thing here. Go on. Do you know that? Do you know the fox and the grapes? Oh, I thought it was the fox and the chicken and the, and the bag of grain getting across well, yeah, the river. That, that's also an Aesop's fable. Oh. But the fox and the grapes is a good one. I'm going to say this. I'm not looking forward to the Falcon Heavy launch this week. Oh, I think it, you know, it's going to be it's going to be boring, Jamie. It's only a rocket, isn't it? Nah. You know, who cares? It's just it's just three Falcon Nine strapped together. I don't, you know, Matt. You've changed. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the BFR. That's what I'm waiting for. Who wants to go see Falcon Heavy? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Can we edit those noises out, please? No. I've creeped myself out. Yours is staying in. It's what everyone's asking for, though, to be fair. Jamie, tell the listeners where we went this week. Well, I don't want to brag, Matt, but, you know, we hopped over to Cologne. Mm -hmm. We only went to the uh, ESA, didn't we? We did. We went to the European Astronaut Centre. We were, like kids in a candy shop weren't properly we? how amazing was it what a brilliant place the great thing is it wasn't even an open day we were just sort of hanging out on a normal day yeah we just it's it's just who we know now it's just who we chill with and it was just crazy when it was like going for a cup of coffee in the canteen and that astronaut strolls in and helps himself to coffee and just wandering yeah. around it's just like, like what right, the heck? morning morning yeah it's morning i'm just off i'm just off to the neutral buoyancy pool <laughs> what <laughs> Yeah, so we're going to be... Which was unbelievable. Should we wait to talk about that? We are going to wait to talk about that because we've got the boss of the neutral buoyancy pool, the man. Uh, And we'll have an interview with him coming up, uh, Hervé, 
we'll have uh, we'll have an interview with him coming up in the next couple of weeks, depending yes. on how old Pint pans out. And that is a great interview. Certainly, it's really, one. I, really interesting, wasn't it? It was unbelievable. He, what what a bloke, and he and it was so so good of him to spare like literally thirty minutes of his time talking to a couple of chumps from London. But there we go. It was well, brilliant. One chump. <laughs> <laughs> me, me, Matt, it's me. Oh, is that you? Now you ask some yeah, good questions. Yeah, yeah. I liked some I'll of your questions. One for the team. Yeah, big time. That's what I do. Uh, to be in the heart of the European Astronaut Centre, and it's it's also where the DLR, uh, not to be confused with the uh, Docklands Light Railway, uh, it is the German Space Agency. That's where they're based. That's right. So it's 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 in that campus. So we saw some weird buildings, didn't we? That I was insisting we did was see a, some weird buildings. a car park. You called one a car park, and I was right in saying that something something interesting goes on in that building. Yeah. And what went on in that building? Matt? It was things like they do sleep experiments and stuff like that, and loads of kind yeah. of like weird pressure stuff. eyeball pressure. Yeah. Was one. Yeah. Yeah. So. I'm going to look into that because that building was weird, wasn't it? It did look like a car park, you've got to admit. Didn't. It didn't. <laughs> it didn't look like a car park. Otherwise, I'd have agreed with you rather than saying, I bet really interesting stuff goes on in there. Uh, but you know now, Matt, I do Matt know not now. to disagree I with me. I do know now. 14 astronauts have their office at the uh, European Astronaut Centre. All of ESA's 14 astronauts. How cool is that? Amazing. So, and there was the ATV there as well that we had a little look round mm-hmm. and the little oh, all the little training Columbus modules and stuff. Oh my god, it was so good! But we'll talk about it more. Yeah. We'll talk about it more over the next couple of weeks because we actually, what we really want to get onto is our interview with the main man who is what we made the whole trip for, Monsieur Tim Peak. Get out of here! Yeah, Tim Peak. You interviewed Tim Peak. Issa's. First British astronaut. I still kind of wake up going, yeah, we interviewed Tim Peake. That's how amazing is that? That is pretty amazing. The guy is going back to the space station in the not too distant future. We hope. We and hope. We got, we, hope. we got a good half an hour with him, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, so let's just have a quick rundown about Tim Peake before we, before we play the interview. What do you reckon? Let's do a rundown. So Tim Peake was chosen in May... 20th 2009 as part of the shenanigans which was yeah so it that's uh, out of 9,000 applicants they were left with samantha christoforetti alexander gerst andreas morgensen luca barmetano timothy peak and thomas pesquet it's not a bad bunch that is a good bunch isn't it um yeah, and as we'll hear from Tim Peake, he was in the army for 17 years. And he flew Apache helicopters yeah, as a test yeah. pilot. He's got a, he's got a science degree in flight dynamics. He, ha- he has, He yes. was part of the ESA Caves uh, mission. He was an aquanaut on NEMO 16. Aquanaut. So, yeah, he went to the International Space Station on the 15th of December 2015, which must have been one of the most watched space launches in this country of all time, I'd imagine. It was. Everyone in my office that John Henry stopped and watched, and it was great. Buzzing. It was buzzing, wasn't it? And that mission was known as the Principia mission, of course, named after the famous book by fellow Brit Isaac Newton. And actually, Tim mentioned him, didn't he, after one of our questions, which we won't give away. His first meal on the ISS was a bacon sandwich and a cup of tea. I just sort of point that out 
Jamie, a cup of well, tea. Well, the bacon sandwich sounds nice. A cup yeah, of tea. Yeah. And uh, participated in a spacewalk on the ISS. And as we'll hear from our other special guest, there's a very big story around ESA astronauts and spacewalks, but we'll have to wait for that for uh, in a few weeks' time. Absolutely. And, you know, on the 24th of April, Matt, yep. Peak ran the 2016 London Marathon from the ISS treadmill. And he became the first man to run a marathon from space. Yes, not the first woman, however, because there was a woman that beat him to that. But uh, Very true. Yeah, in Chichester City Council on the 17th of February 2016, it was agreed unanimously to confer the freedom of the city. Oh, I bet he was relieved. Yep, and then, so yeah, you can just wander around living it large in Chichester now. <laughs> like properly. Big time, he's got the key. Yeah, and if he comes up to the city gates... He's got the key. Boom. This is it. 18th of June, 2016, we all watched him come back down to Earth in the capsule that's now up at the Railway Museum in it is. York. And I've seen a few lots of people uh, posting pictures of that on, on Twitter. Uh, I'm glad yeah. you all heard about it here first on the podcast and went along. Well done, everyone. Well done. So shall we listen to that um, interview right now? Let's do it. Ecoute! So at the beginning of 2018, we put together a list of people that we really, really wanted to speak to this year, and uh, Tim Peake was at the very, very top of that list, and uh, we're peaking early because we've got you in January, which is fantastic news. So today we're joined by our very special guest, ESA astronaut and fellow Brit, Tim Peake. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning indeed. So yes, nice Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got into the astronauting game? Sure. Well, my background was as a military pilot. Um, I loved aviation throughout my teenage years. I was in the cadet force at school and they had both an air force section and an army section. And I was in a bit of a dichotomy because I loved everything about the army, but I also loved flying. So I, would, uh, I, I was in the army section. I would go off flying with the air force section at the weekends. And that really uh, inspired me to, to want to become a pilot. I was very fortunate to have, um, you know, to pass all the medical tests and to be able to have a a great 17-year uh, career with the Army Air Corps flying helicopters. And for about the last six or seven years, I was a test pilot as well, um, primarily flying Apache helicopters. But as a test pilot, of course, you get qualified on a whole range of different aircraft. And I, I got to fly over 30 different aircraft, which was brilliant, including fast jets, heavy transport aircraft, and, and what have you. And then, um, as often happens, you know, in the military, the, 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 as an officer, your career path is always leaning towards a desk job and management positions and promotion. And I wanted to stay flying. I wanted to be in the cockpit. That's where I, I you know, loved what I loved doing. And so, um, for me, I made the transition to become a, a, a civil uh, test pilot. And I went to work for Augusta Westland Helicopters down in Yeovil as a test pilot. Now, at the same time, the European Space Agency was having its selection process. And that's the moment at which uh, the door really opened for me to become an astronaut. Because prior to that, of course, I'd loved everything to do with space. Um, it'd been a, a huge uh, inspiration to me. It'd been a huge part of my life as well. And working as a test pilot, you work very closely with the space industry. But it wasn't until ESA had that selection in 2008 that the door opened, not just for the UK, but all the member states and the European Space Agency. Prior to that, of course, if your country wasn't contributing into the human spaceflight programme, 
you couldn't become an astronaut. Um, which is why, you know, our first British astronaut, Helen Sharman, she had to fly under a, a sort of commercially sponsored program rather than a government-led program. Right. And actually that leads on to the next question because when you go back to the ISS, are you potentially going to be on a commercial craft? And if so, do you think it will be Dragon or Starliner? And if so, would you be helping to construct a deep space gateway potentially? Yeah, a really interesting question. So, uh, yes to your first uh, <laughs> first question. Uh, if I get another mission back to the, the International Space Station, which I hope I do, it will be on a commercial crew. Um, and the reason for that is we're a European Space Agency. We actually uh, barter our flights to the space station through NASA. And currently we have Alex Guest flying later this year on a Soyuz rocket. And then Luca Palmitano will fly in 2019 on a Soyuz rocket as well. But we expect Luca to be the last European uh, astronaut on a Soyuz rocket under the current framework agreement. So... All future European astronauts after Luca are likely to fly on commercial. Now, as to whether that will be Boeing or SpaceX, I don't know, and I wouldn't comment even if I did know. <laughs> I mean, they're obviously they're, they're hugely ambitious programs, and um, they're uh, you know you see what SpaceX is doing. They've been delivering the Dragon spacecraft to the space station with cargo. In fact, I had the privilege of capturing a Dragon spacecraft um, full of cargo, uh, and uh, you know they're both online. They're, the programs have slipped slightly but they are both online for um, a very good test program in 2019 and we hope um, that they will start delivering crew to the space station in 2019 as well. Yeah, I mean, I know you're a fan of Russian engineering and, and obviously you had all the faith in the world, obviously, for the Soyuz launch. It, would you have, I mean, it, would you be slightly more apprehensive with a, with a whole new system? Um, no, I, I wouldn't be any more uh, more or less apprehensive. I th and there's, there's inherent risk in any rocket launch. And yes, the Soyuz has got a fantastic safety record. But it's also the Soyuz and the Progress have had their fair share of problems. Um, and in fact, a couple of the more recent problems on the Progress spacecraft, uh, or they actually happened on the, the Soyuz rocket that carries the Progress spacecraft, to put it more accurately, and those problems could have occurred on a crewed version. Yeah. It was just lucky that at the time it was carrying a progress supply vehicle and not the, the crew uh, vehicle. So um, on, on a new commercial spacecraft, of course, there's risk in any new program. But as I said, I mean, Boeing's got an excellent track record in, in, in terms of being with the space industry and SpaceX as well. They've, they've you know, come on so far. And what they're doing is absolutely phenomenal. And the Dragon spacecraft now has got a, a very good, robust uh, um, uh, record behind it. So, uh, no, I, I mean, as a test pilot, yes, there's, there's always going to be risk involved, but I don't think any more so. Right. Well, one of our guests last summer was Mike Fowl, who was saying that he was slightly worried about the ISS being decommissioned. And now there's rumours that the Trump administration are saying that there's no more funding from 2025. What's your feelings on this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there is there is an area of concern there, but there's also an area of opportunity. And it's a little bit like the space shuttle retirement in 2011. You know, how do you build something like SLS at the same time as supporting a space shuttle program, at the same time as supporting an international space station program? If we want to go on and if we want to build the deep space gateway, if we want to be serious about lunar exploration, something has to give. The money will only stretch so far. And the plan has always been to hand over the space station to the commercial sector. Now, the Trump administration is obviously wanting to accelerate that 
process. So I think the risk here is that 2025 is a little bit too soon and the commercial sector is not fully up and running, not in a position to take over the running of the space station. And that transition period, we have to obviously... uh, we basically have to ensure that we still have access to low Earth orbit for uh, our astronauts at the same time as we're pushing forward to the deep space gateway. So that has to be done carefully. Um, but there, you know, the plans are underway to both provide access to low Earth orbit and the deep space gateway at the same time. Uh, Apollo, obviously, is, it, it's in the middle of its kind of 50th anniversary. We just had the 50th anniversary of Apollo 5 and we're heading towards uh, more significant ones. Um, In the year 2078, what would you like to have been achieved in uh, space, like 50 years from now? In 2078, so I I think that uh, I would like to know that we have permanent habitation on the lunar surface. Um, and, uh, I, you know, with uh, great research being done there, also exploring the resources that we can use for future space exploration from the lunar surface and also to assist with, you know, life back on Earth. I'd like to think that we uh, have a presence on Mars as well in 50 years. I think that's very achievable. Um, a smaller presence, but also permanently occupied um, presence on Mars. Um, and I'd like to think that we have, you know, technologies, propulsion technologies that will be cutting our transit time to Mars down to a matter of one to two months as opposed to seven to eight months. Um, uh, so that that really is going to be key for sustainability on Mars and for access to Mars um, is, is the propulsion technologies and radiation shielding, of course. But these are not insurmountable problems. Sure. Now, here's one from my five year old nephew, Adam. He said... How big does the Earth look from space? Uh, how big does it look from space? Well, of course, it depends how far away you are from space. And, and from the International Space Station, it still looks pretty big yeah. um, because you're only at 400 kilometers, which is why we're hurtling around at nearly 18,000 miles per hour. Um, I was speaking recently to Al Warden um, uh, and his Apollo experience. And of course, not only uh, did he uh, you know, fly to the moon and see what the Earth looked like from 400,000 kilometers away, uh, where you can cover up the Earth with your thumb, you know, in a window, it's that small. But he also got to do a deep space spacewalk on the way back from the moon. And he said that was incredible because, of course, the trajectory that the Apollo module takes when it comes from the moon back to Earth, there's a point where uh, it's not a straight line. You're, you're obviously flying a trajectory to intercept the Earth. And so there was a point where he was doing a spacewalk and the moon was in one direction and then the Earth was off in an, another direction. And he was almost forming a triangle yeah. and seeing both locations so remote and feeling, you know, outside a spacecraft in a spacesuit, just feeling like the most remote person in the universe so so yeah the earth can i'm sure for for those for apollo astronauts i'm sure the earth looked very very small indeed we got the chance to interview him a, a, a year ago and uh, mm. one of the questions was what food and drink was he most looking forward to having when he got back and he said vodka and spaghetti <laughs> what would, what would you at want? the same time <laughs> <laughs> mine was beer and pizza amazing i mean i yeah, he actually told us the story about the uh, the deep space really, um, yeah, uh, yeah. spacewalk and and how he'd drawn the uh, what it looked like and had to do that from memory back at back at NASA because they didn't you know couldn't take a picture of it. Yes, and I thought that's yeah. that's incredible. But uh, yeah. I, I, would you is that something that you would relish a deep space? A very oh, deep absolutely, space yes, yeah. No, if I if my next mission was an opportunity to to be involved in the deep space gateway program, I would absolutely relish it. Yes. 
Uh, and the great news is, of course, Europe, uh, Europe is providing this service module for that. In fact, later this year, we deliver the first European service module for the Orion spacecraft. Uh, and so we very much hope to have European astronauts flying on some of those early missions to the, to the Deep Space Gateway. Um, that would be an incredible mission to be involved in. Absolutely. So, Tim, what would you say is the space industry's biggest danger right now? Um, I'm not sure there are many dangers at the moment. The space industry has a very exciting future ahead. We have to obviously... uh in terms of managing government programs and commercial programs, we have to get that balance right and that integration right. But we have experience, and we've been talking about, you know, Dragon and the space station, Cygnus as well has been involved in delivering cargo. And we're now looking at companies like Axiom and Bigelow. We have a Bigelow module on, attached to the space station and, uh, and how we can tra- make that transition. So um, I think these partnerships are going to be fundamental. And as we look not just to low Earth orbit, but we look at how we can have commercial partnerships um, involved in the deep space exploration in in the lunar missions and in the Mars missions as well. That's worked well, very well with robotic exploration, of course, and we now just need to do the the same with human exploration. But no, I think the the space industry um, is going to you know, have a very exciting period ahead. And as we, uh, things such as propulsion technologies, which are improving, things like, you know, AI is, uh, and, and um, uh, digital technology is constantly improving. Um, we're constantly finding new lightweight materials. This is all hopefully going to build better spacecraft and bring the cost of access to space down as well. Um, and cost of access to space means it becomes, you know, a greater opportunity for more people on Earth. Um, so I think it's only only opportunities as we look forward. Sure. Where, where do you think ESA and UK space uh, should be concentrating their efforts? Is there is there a particular is there a place where we sit that is beneficial to the? Because it seems to be a very international effort, space really. Yeah. And is there a, a real thing that you see ESA and UK space being part of? So that's a very important question, and it's a key question, because yes, it, it's about international partnerships, collaborations, etc. but we need to make sure that we are on the critical path in those, uh, in those partnerships. And I mentioned about the service module to Orion, that's why it's so important for Europe to be involved in that aspect, because that is clearly the critical path to a, a spacecraft and to that exploration program. But it, it's also for the deep space gateway. You know, we need to have an absolute fundamental part in that so that we remain uh, involved, so that the European Space Agency remains involved and has access to those programs. Um, and the UK Space Agency, as part of, and the UK as a member state, the European Space Agency, of course, can contribute to those programs and to be, be a part of those programs. And that's extremely important as well. Um, but at the same time, I do think it's important for Europe to um, look at the areas of risk in terms of not being left out into the, in the cold and thinking about what capabilities should we be improving for ourselves. And clearly, um, launcher, we have a, you know, Ariane uh, 6 rocket, which is a fantastic launcher, but we have no human spaceflight capability. There are opportunities coming up in the future that could potentially give us that. For example, Sierra Nevada with the Dream Chaser, Ariane 6 combination suddenly gives Europe uh, a fantastic capability into low Earth orbit uh, for uh, our astronauts to visit a commercial space station potentially or being involved again in a commercial space station partnership beyond the International Space Station. So I think we do have to be very careful about looking um, at where Europe's weaknesses are 
are in terms of our access to space and the programs that we're involved in um, and make sure that we, we you know we get involved in the right places in these partnerships yeah you actually i mean you preempted one of my questions about uh, the native human spaceflight program but that's really interesting about the, the dream chaser on ariane uh, what, with you with the uk do you see us having a, a spaceport with a with a, a you know small satellite launch capability do you think that's around the corner because that's you know it's been yeah it has been and it's again a very very important development and a very interesting development yes i think in time that will come and of course it's it's fantastic at the moment that really the uk is is leading europe in terms of its getting the legislation in place that will permit that we have some fantastic potential locations in the uk for spaceports um, in particular suiting polar orbits and um, for small satellite launches either vertical or horizontal launch then it's a great location and we need to make it attractive for commercial companies to come to the UK and to you know, participate in, in building the, the infrastructure for the spaceport and building up that industry. Uh, yes, so I think the short answer is uh, there's definitely the opportunity there and we, yeah. need, to, we need to continue to make sure that uh, in the UK that they're well positioned within Europe to do that. So this one's a tough question, but if you could have dinner with two people, alive or dead, not us two. Not us, of course. <laughs> no, that's choice. But who, who would they be? Anyone who you would love to sit down with? Um, goodness me, I, th- I think a conversation between Newton and, and Einstein would be, yeah. <laughs> would be absolutely brilliant. Could you, could you imagine uh, sitting at a table? But no, that would, that would be brilliant uh, to be able to talk to One Newton and Einstein. Our, um, our listeners was to, we, we created a playlist of, of songs about space. And we got over a hundred, which kind of surprised us. All these ones coming in on Facebook. Is there any song about space that you kind of hold close? Uh, there are loads. I mean, I, I did the Space Rocks competition for the Principia mission, so and I found it a struggle to narrow that down to just 70, 75 tracks, which all had something to do about space. Um, so I wouldn't want to single anyone out yeah. in particular. Um, but no, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I love all sorts of different music. And uh, uh, yeah, Don't Stop Me Now was a very good choice, by the way. I, I thought that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it, it was... The Queen song 39, didn't you? 39, yes, right. that was the... Uh, yeah, someone made it onto our space song list. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Because it's about space. Yeah. What yeah. would you say is the most fascinating experiment that you that you did on the ISS? Um, there were lots of different experiments that, that interested me for different reasons. Some of the experiments re- that require uh, an awful lot of astronaut interaction, of course, either with a with a guinea pig, with a subject of the experiment. So, of course, we're going to find that interesting. But also some experiments that require very little input from the astronaut. But they're fascinating science. Uh, for example, the electromagnetic levitator in the Columbus module. I mean, we're, we're, we're designing and manufacturing alloys, metal alloys, that you simply cannot manufacture back here on Earth that have amazing qualities in terms of lightweight, strong materials. And in the Japanese laboratory, we're doing the same, but with composite materials. Um, requires very little interaction, actually, from an astronaut point of view, but fascinating science. And then uh, from our point of view, I mean, one of the ones I love doing with the airway monitoring experiment where we're investigating lung physiology uh, it's going to have 
big impact for asthma sufferers here on Earth, for example, uh, and using not only the microgravity environment, but reduced pressure. So we went into the airlock, we took the pressure down in the airlock, um, uh, and that was a very, very complex experiment. So it's very, very satisfying when you can run complex science on board the space station and everything works you know, perfectly according to plan. That's a good day in the office. Yeah, right, right. So that, some of those experiments were very, very good to do. With, with that, those experiments, presumably you have a lot of people on the ground giving you instructions on how to do those experiments. Mm. If the same thing was happening, say, at Deep Space Gateway or something even further out orbiting Mars, how, how would that, has that logistics been thought through? Or, or? It has been thought through, yes, and that, that's something we're using the space station as a um, as a technology testbed, if you like, for that, uh, and also a procedural testbed. It's very easy in low Earth orbit um, to get into the habit and the luxury mm -hmm. of just being able to, you know, to call ground. Right. I mean, we have a problem, call ground. And not only can we call ground, but hey, we got a video link as well, a real-time yeah. video link, so you can actually show them the problem you've got, and you can have people on the ground talking you through solutions, etc which is great for making the space station an incredibly efficient environment to work in, but it's not great for getting people into the mindset of a 20-minute delay when we're on a deep space mission. Um, so we use space analogs a lot. I mean, when I was doing the 12-day underwater mission, NEMO mission, for that entire mission, we had a 90-second communication delay. And even just with a 90-second delay, things such as medical emergencies become impossible right. to manage We're talking to the mission control. The crew has to be completely self-sufficient. Um, so when you go into a order of, you know, a few, several minutes of worth of delay, that level of uh, sort of um, autonomous operation is only going to increase. So we're going to, we're, there are plans to use the space station as a test bed for that as well. Um, but actually, you know, our job as astronauts on the space station is to execute procedures um, accurately and efficiently. And for the majority of the time, the procedures have gone through so many checks before they actually even make it on board the space station, including people like myself now here on Earth as flown astronauts, we will get involved in checking them that by the time the astronauts execute them on board, there are, in most circumstances, there are very few questions anyway. Things, sure. things run pretty, pretty smoothly. Actually, it's interesting you mentioned about being able to kind of Skype back to people on Earth. Um, one of the, the event that me and Matt went to a couple of years ago was Mars Nation, where people get together from other industries, not inside space, to try and work on problems. And one problem is mental health in space. And the idea that being you know, segregated from everyone else is a real issue potentially with people who might be going to Mars um, and how we would combat that and lots of people came up with different ideas and one was kind of a pet a pet seal was it? <laughs> that you could interact with so that you feel like you were looking after something one was a VR that was simulating weather because I know you missed rain and weather didn't you so mm -hmm. um, is there anything that you you think really helped you when you were really missing being down here? You know, it's, it's a very good point, and I, I think that I, we do need to think very carefully about those kind of issues. VR is a, is a great um, tool, and in particular, when I was running the the London Marathon, there was a, the company that did the the digital London Marathon, Run Social, had the app which I was going to run, which was the you know so that I would be running with avatars through the streets of London and listening to the crowds cheering and everything. So that was a huge morale boost, and that was a fantastic thing to do. But they also said, hey Tim, you know, give us a couple of your favourite running routes and we'll, we'll film them and put them into the app as well. Um, so I had a couple 
couple of brilliant routes in the Scottish Highlands that I love to run along, and uh, and they film them for me, and I was amazed at the benefits of that in yeah. terms of you know psychological well-being yeah. because I would and actually I could use them on the bike machines whether I wanted to go mountain biking or go for a run suddenly I was in the Scottish Highlands and uh, and you can just zone out for you know 45 minutes yeah. and just go on the most fantastic run and it just puts you into a completely different mindset how does it work planning with that like do you kind of say okay well this is our this is our mission today these are the experiments that we're doing and then we've got three hours off today so I'm going to do an hour running kind of thing. No the, the fitness training is very much a scheduled part of your right. daily activity and because there are six crew on board and only a limited number of exercise devices we our fitness time is very strict uh, in time of preparation and then we also have to get a mix of cardiovascular and strength training so uh, on one day you know you normally try and do one cardio session one strength a day it might be the bike one day uh, the treadmill the next day but always the strength training at some point. Did you have a favorite exercise um not particularly i, I loved all exercise I, I loved all the exercises um the the t2 uh, treadmill is not the easiest to run on yeah. so whilst i i'm not seeing you doing the math i was thinking how easy is that yeah yeah that so whilst i love running anything more than about 45 minutes gets a quite painful with, yeah. with the harness system there yeah. uh, most astronauts love the uh, a red which is our weight training exercise mm-hmm. and i think just because it feels good to Put weight on your shoulders, and I mean things like squat thrust, which I don't particularly enjoy down, you know, here on Earth. Um, but actually, it feels really good in space, in weightlessness, to just get that weight on your spine, and that that it, it felt very, very nice. And so I, I used to like working out on the A Red device. And this is a tough one. What would you say the best advice you've ever received is? Look out the window. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, it's funny. I mean, uh, Helen Sharman actually said that to me before I launched, and she said, you know. You, you take time to enjoy it for yourself as well it's very important because most of the time you're working up there and even when you have the opportunity to go to the window you're thinking i've got to get this photograph this shot you know maybe it's the pyramids or it's something you've been waiting for and there are very few opportunities where you can just go to the window with no camera no nothing and just you know float there and look and just enjoy it for yourself well i think we've been told that this is the last question so thank you so much Thank you. Incredible. Thank you, guys. Great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. What a geezer is Tim Peake. He's just, he's the man, isn't he? He is the man. He was, he was, what a fantastic, he took the time to come and uh, talk to us. He took the time. He signed some stuff. We got, we got Principia badges. Yes, we got. Uh, we, he came, t-shirts, Easter t-shirts. Yeah, he came back and like was <laughs> was really With goodies. Kind, he was really nice to us. He, he went off and got some, got some load of goodies. We were actually sort of told beforehand that it was like a bit kind of faux pas to get stuff signed and stuff. At the, you know, it was a bit more of a sign of yeah. professional meeting. But he did go off. I I thought we were going to get into trouble when he went off and started signing stuff. <laughs> I know. I was thinking. I was oh, going, no, God, don't don't show we, the others, we, Tim. Can you tell them that this we didn't ask? Please. <laughs> it was good, wasn't it? It was absolutely brilliant and uh yeah really really pleased that he was as amazing as we thought he was going to be yeah I'm, i there was definitely a few people to thank uh for this trip really was our absolute hero julio Aprea, just been a complete legend it's just a bona fide absolute legend and it wouldn't have been possible without him um and of course antonio who was our third interview yeah so antonio is uh is also just brilliant 
uh, and and what an, and walking encyclopedia. I learned so many things as we just walked he around was the internet. Scarily, scarily intelligent. I like the, and I like we the, can't forget. <laughs> I, I like the way when he was talking about the International Space Station, like on stuff that I, I was like, oh my god, I've not heard any of this stuff before. And he was like, I, know, I think he was assuming me. that we knew all this stuff, and it was just like, man, there is so much stuff about this, and the incredible. Um, realization of how much ESA have put into the International Space Station. We just yeah, don't shout. No, we don't shout from the roofs enough no about it. Idea, and Matt, we've got to also thank Alessandra. And again, wouldn't have been able to make it happen without her. So, tip of the cap to all of those three incredible people. Yes, they were, they're also kind to us, and uh, we really hope to get down to the European Astronaut Centre again. They'll probably give us a key now, won't yeah, they? Yeah, we'll probably get the key. You know, like Peaks just got, yeah. So we're going, we're going to spe- take our mission to up the fantastic people of ESA. What a fantastic bunch. I want to just cover one last thing, Jamie, because this week, okay. in fact, last uh, yesterday, 60 years ago to the day, um, uh-huh. the Americans launched... A Juno 1, and a lot of people think it was a Jupiter C, but it wasn't. It was a Juno 1, a modified Jupiter C. And they launched, on top of that, the first scientific instrument into space, or USA's first satellite. So this became the third satellite ever after Sputnik and Mutnik by the USSR, of course. But yeah, 60 years. So 60 years ago, this week is the start of the space race. Happy anniversary. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, Von Braun was uh, very much involved with all, all of this, uh, designing the Juno and getting this, uh, getting this instrument into space. Uh, and one fantastic fact <laughs> that Antonio told us when we were looking at little model rockets, and I pointed out, of course, mm. that the black arrow was missing. Uh, but anyway, yeah. so it, he, he pointed out that the letters UE on the Juno 1 stood for the number rocket and how that worked and i thought that was really interesting so huntsville was where these things were being flown from so they use the letters in huntsville to uh to represent the numbers on the the letters on the side of the uh, rockets so that the soviets had no idea what uh where they were in the in the amount of rockets that they'd been launching and building. How cool is that? It's pretty clever. It was pretty clever. Yeah, so UE was the number was the lettering on the side of the uh Juno one that launched uh the Explorer one and that stands for 29. You can work that out by writing the word Huntsville and leaving out the duplicate letters. It's fantastic. Quick maths. Quick maths. An Explorer one was a 30 pound satellite. It was designed by a Mr. James A. Van Allen. Now, that will give there you a clue as yes. to what happened next. Is that its four instruments, its main four instruments that it had on board, they discovered the Van Allen radiation belts. Varab. Which must have been quite a shock. Must have been quite a shock. Hey, Absolutely and uh, so yeah we we have explorer one the very first really the very first proper scientific instrument in space 60 years ago uh that's discovered the van allen belts uh with very very important discovery of course well more than important extremely important discovery uh which just goes to show the how important it is that we have uh space exploration 
And little did they know that it would go on to fuel conspiracy theorists <laughs> across the globe. So well done, Dr. James Van Allen and your amazing sensors. There was even a little acoustic detector that was like a, a little tiny microphone, crystal transducer, uh, and that was detected me- uh, micrometeorites hitting the side of the, of the spacecraft. No way. Yeah. Sweet. So, yeah, they could work out how many kind of micrometeorites are out there in space as well. There was, you know, that's how cool is that? Temperature sensors and things like that. There's one or two. And uh, so, yeah, the Geiger counter that was on board, most of the time it's spent saturated, (laughs) i.e. above its kind of level because it was like, oh, Mm. my God, there's loads of radiation out here. Unbelievable. And uh, all this, the 60th anniversary, was marked by an amazing... As as I as was predicted on our predictions for 2018, <laughs> uh, we yeah. predicted the second full moon of the month, which, as we, we know, did. only happens once in a blue moon. And uh, we, you went out to look at it, didn't you? Because it was unbelievably it bright. It was the brightest moon I've. I mean, I've seen some moons, Matt, but that was bright, wasn't but it? This last night? was the brightest I've ever seen. It really hurt. To look at it. <laughs> it was actually unbelievably bright. But uh, of course, for some people around the world, they get they got to saw not only the blue moon, but they got to get to see it go red when it was got when the there was a red, yeah, yeah the blood red lunar eclipse so well gels so in some ways i wonder if nasa launched <laughs> the explorer one knowing that the 60th anniversary is going to be so brilliant it's just incredible so thanks very much everyone for listening to this yes. uh, momentous podcast hey matt if we've got some new listeners tonight yeah because obviously we interviewed the big dog tim peak um what can they do to listen again and subscribe? Well, they can they can wander off to www.interplanetary.org.uk where they'll find a load of convenient links to either iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Patreon. Uh, Patreon. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. What? All those things. You can go and check us out on any of any platform. How social are we? But to be honest, all you really need to do is just type in the Interplanetary Podcast into Google and you'll find us all over the shop. And you know what will happen. You'll, you'll type in I-N-T-E-R and it will basically just come up. Yeah. And say, oh, do you want the Interplanetary Podcast like everyone else? Yeah, uh, exactly. It won't, it won't. You'll have to type the whole thing. <laughs> but listen, that's where we're aiming to. That's my goal. Absolutely, yeah. we're, and we're, all, we're we're halfway there. That's what I say. Whoa, Jamie! Yeah, the interplanetary podcast, putting, putting the ace, ace back in into space. space. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, Jamie, what? as well. What? The one bit of merch that we're selling quite a bit of, yeah, bit of. Is our rocket equation T-shirt? Get out of here! Yeah, you mean there's been, other geeks. Other There's other us. geeks that want that want to wear the Rocket Equation. So yeah, go to our merch store and check out our Rocket Equation T-shirt. Very popular. I Very popular. Can't you can get got a merch stickers. Store. You can get phone cases. You can get. It. You can even have it as your duvet. Imagine that a Rocket Equation duvet. How have I got a space merchandise store and I'm still single? I just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh god oh, i think i better go and just 
cry myself to sleep. I think it's because you're living the bachelor life because mm. of your space merch store. Yeah, I mean, you know, all, all, the, all the guys with girlfriends and wives are probably so jealous, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. Big time. <laughs> yeah. All right, Matt, well, listen, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, you know what to do. No, not just thank you. Oh. Thank you for oh, listening. Blimey, yeah. And as Tim wrote um, for my five-year-old nephew fan, Adam... He wrote, Dear Adam, aim high, Tim Peake. Wow. I'd like you guys to all aim high, including you, Matt. Uh, As John Anderson said, shoot high, aim low. (laughs) (laughs) Never really understood that lyric. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye, guys. (laughs) 